Coming up, we're down to the Elite Eight in the NCAA Tournament. I'll preview which teams will move on to the Final Four. The baseball season is just about here. I'll also preview what this 2021 season will look like. And of course, dive into the Mets playoffs and World Series chances. Is the world ready for a Brooklyn Nets LA Lakers NBA Finals? It's sure looking that way as I'll explain why. And Oscar De La Hoya making a comeback? Those are some of the highlights you'll hear a little bit later on. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you to all please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even CastBox, Player FM, and also Amazon Music. For more information on me, the pod, archive shows, etc., you can go to the website at www.jreels.com. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it, in turn, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I can flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. I appreciate you all for supporting the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, trusting, and believing in me. And with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Wishing all is well in your world as we set out to close not only the month of March, but also the first quarter of 2021. What? How is this possible? Three months down already? Before you know it, it's going to be 4th of July. It's going to be NFL kickoff 2021 in September. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the ball will drop and it's going to be 2022. So please people, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you haven't been doing, Time doesn't wait for anybody. So start that exercise plan you've been putting off since the new year began. Make better choices to your diet so you can live longer. Dive into whatever it is that you've been wanting to do. Because as you've seen, the time is going to pass anyway. So get cracking, people. Let's make it happen. I'm behind you. I'm rooting for you. We're all in this together. So let's get it. Speaking of making it happen, let me get cracking and fill you in on all that's going on in the world of sports. Thank you for stopping by as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 187 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, March the 29th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. 
What to expect during this podcast is as follows. The 2021 MLB season is on deck. I'll preview what could be in store as we expect to have a full season for the first time in two years. I'll share my over-under numbers, which we'll have some fun with. Obviously, we didn't have it last year due to the 60 games. It wasn't worth even discussing or getting into, so we'll definitely get my over on the numbers for the year, discuss my beloved New York Mets, who will go to the World Series and win. I'll have all that for you later on, as well as, is it a formality that the Nets and Lakers will meet up in an NBA Finals? Based on some of the moves over the weekend and with the trade deadline passing last Thursday, but the acquisitions of LaMarcus Aldridge to the Nets and Andre Drummond to the LA Lakers, it looks like it's going to be a collision course for those two teams meeting up in an NBA final. So you'll get my take on that, as well as what's happening in the NFL. Not one, but two big trades by the Miami Dolphins this week that impacts the top of the draft. That will highlight the Shield, as well as Alvin Kamara and his comment about the NFL proposing and looks like it's going to pass a 17-game season this upcoming year, which I do not like, and you'll be sure to get my full two red cents about that. Also, the NHL with referee Tim Peel, his open mic gets him into an early retirement, which he had scheduled to do at the end of the year. And Oscar De La Hoya mounting a comeback at the age of 48? Are you serious? All that to chew on, plus my hero and zero of the week. And then there were eight. As we're now into the Elite Eight of the NCAA Men's Tournament, March Madness continues as tonight you'll have the two games to determine who will move on to the Final Four. As Oregon State and everything that they've done to this state in the tournament go up against number two Houston, which will be followed by number three Arkansas versus number one Baylor. Where tomorrow night you'll have USC, the number six team ranked in that region, go up against Gonzaga. And UCLA with their miraculous win yesterday as the game was pushed into overtime thanks to a big three-pointer there right at the buzzer by Alabama. But the Bruins prevail and they'll move on to face the Michigan Wolverines. Now when we were on the podcast last Monday, it was prior to the final day of the second round and really didn't have anything going on that Monday So with everything that jumped off Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all of the upsets, all the crazy victories by the double-digit seeds, where that was part of the theme for me last week as we looked into the Sweet 16 weekend, when you looked at a team like Oral Roberts and what they've done to get themselves to a Sweet 16, and of course we'll get through all the games here in a minute, but with Oral Roberts, also UCLA, when you look at a team like Syracuse, As we know in the tournament, historically, they've fared very well. And Syracuse behind Buddy Bayheim and what he did in the first two games of the tournament. And his father, of course, the institution there, Jim Bayheim, and everything that the Orangemen have done. And looking at those teams as well as UCLA, a blue blood in its own right. All these double-digit seeds looking to make their mark, not only on this tournament, as teams that have been there before, the aforementioned Bruins and Orangemen, and the teams that really have not gone this deep, whether you're Oregon State or even Oral Roberts. And we'll start with the games on Saturday because you had two of the four games, which are fantastic. Yesterday, the UCLA victory over Alabama was the highlight because the other three games were just pretty much ho-hum. But Oregon State leads us here as they topped Loyola Chicago behind Ethan Thompson's 20 points, including the two free throws to clinch the game, which set up 
the three-pointer by Jared Lucas, which was the biggest shot there at 53-49, which sealed it for the Beavers. So the Loyola Chicago team, which had the wonderful victory over Illinois, the first number one seed to get knocked out of this tournament and the only one to date to where Sister Jean and company, all the prayers couldn't help them yesterday or two days ago, I should say, to where Oregon State right now is looking to get themselves to the next level, to that next step, a team that a lot of people thought were going to be picked last in the Pac-12. And as we've seen here so far, the Pac-12 has done more than what you could ever imagine here in the tournament as you still have quite a few teams here standing. And with the way that Oregon State has played to this point, why not them beating Houston tonight to get themselves to a Final Four? And that's why I said last week where these teams, even though that a lot of the nation, a lot of even the sports fans have never really seen or even heard of when you look at some of these teams that I've mentioned, for them to be this close or for them to play down to the wire in a lot of these games, it just goes to show you that it's just the bounce of a ball or a missed free throw or made basket that they're just that close from winning these games and moving ahead to get closer to a national title. And that's what you've seen here is Oregon State being that one team. Now granted that Loyola Chicago did not shoot well. They actually shot 33% from the field and were 5 of 23 from 3. So you got to give it up for Oregon State. More so on the defensive side, but they did not shoot well, Loyola Chicago. And we know that they've been very efficient here up until this point, especially with that victory over Illinois. But it's amazing to think that the Oregon State team, led by Coach Wayne Tinkle, I'm sure he couldn't have dreamt that his team would be in this position at this point, literally just one game away from making it to a Final Four. And as I said, and we'll talk about the game against Houston later on as I'll give you a little preview of that. But all the credit goes to them. And this is what the beauty of March Madness is like. When you have teams like this take that next step and show to the world that underdogs in any sport, people are going to rally around. And you know that tonight, not to say that people are going to Go crazy for Houston because Houston is a team that doesn't have the household names or star power of some of the other teams that are still left in the tournament. But you know that there's going to be pretty much a country that's going to be looking at Oregon State to try to get themselves to the Final Four. And why not? But we'll touch on that a little bit later on. Now Villanova was a team that we know their track record here over the last four or five years, winning two national titles behind their coach Jay Wright. Now, they hung in there, they kept it close, but Baylor, who did not shoot well, and when you think about it, when you have your backcourt of Jared Butler and Macy Oteague, two guys who could shoot the lights out of the ball, go one from nine from three, and then score five points without a three, respectively, shows you that they were not only resourceful enough to come back and win this game, but it also shows the coach and Scott Drew that they were able to make adjustments on the fly and knew that the three wasn't falling, that they had to go in the paint, that they had to attack the basket, where 40 of their 62 points were in the paint. And if they're going to be a threat down low, and granted we know that's not the game that they play, but it just goes to show you what coaching, and not only that, but having the versatility of not depending or relying on the three-point shot to fall at any point of the game was pretty much the difference. And... Their defense, because Villanova, I believe, scored, what, 10 points in the final 11 minutes of the game. And Villanova did well. They were up by seven at the half. They were playing well into the second half of the game. And 
watching this, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, could Villanova somehow, some way, knock off the number one Baylor team where a lot of people thought, and I even thought, when you see what was transpiring throughout this game, how they weren't able to hit any three-pointers, that they weren't able to drain from behind the arc, and it made you think that when you have a team led by a championship coach, you know that they're going to pull out all the stops in order for them to win this game. And in my gut, I thought to myself, I said, I trust Jay Wright more than I trust Scott Drew. And not that I've watched Baylor over the course of not only this season, but the last few years, but I know Villanova. I've seen Jay Wright coach. I've seen what he's been able to do, even though they may not have their best player. But considering that they were still in the game there, halfway through the second half, but Baylor was just too much defensively, especially, and then, of course, down there in the paint, where they were able to prevail and win 62-51 as they move on to the Elite Eight and send Villanova packing for next year. And then you had the game between Arkansas and Oral Roberts, which, let's face it, I know those kids from Oral Roberts got to be sick to their stomachs just knowing that they were this close. That Max Abmus shot there at the end where he had a very good look. And to think, 2.9 seconds left, here he is, going down the court, and he was still able to pull up and get a great shot off. It bounced off the rim, and that is just as tough of a loss as you could possibly see. You know what it made me think of? It brought me back to the championship game between Duke and Butler. If you remember the Gordon Haywood half-court heave that hit off the back of the rim. Now, granted, that was for a national title. This was just to go on to the regional final. But considering that the Butler team from back then, led by Coach Brad Stevens, they were the Cinderella team to make it there to a championship game. And they actually did it in back-to-back years, if you remember. They lost to UConn the year later. But for Oral Roberts to be that close, and for them to have an opportunity to have that shot, if it would have went in, that would have been the biggest shot of the tournament, by far. Because you would have had a 15 seed make it as deep into the tournament for the first time in forever. Because if you think back with the Florida Gold Coast team made it to the Sweet 16, although they weren't able to get out of the regional semifinals, but you would have had a chance here where Oral Roberts, all the way down there on the bracket at 15, were that close from making it to a regional final. And you had the big shot there by Devontae Davis that set up the go-ahead shot there with 2.9 seconds left. The game was back and forth. It was pretty much what March Madness is all about when you watch that type of game between Arkansas and Oral Roberts. And just a tough break. What could you say? It was one of those games that only March could produce because if you were to watch this during a regular season, and as we all know, college basketball from November to late February is pretty much an afterthought. But when it's in the tournament, it becomes thrilling. It's high theater at its best, and that's what sports is about. The unpredictable, the unscripted, and you almost had Oral Roberts continuing to slip their foot into that glass slipper, but unfortunately the clock struck 12 and turned into a pumpkin. But give them credit, they played well, tooth and nail, all the way to the end, but Arkansas was able to prevail and move on, and they'll go up against the Baylor Bears. And then the nightcap game on Saturday... Houston's defense did everything to slow down Buddy Bayheim, who as we've seen in the first two games of the tournament, scoring 55 points, arguably probably the best player in the tournament up until that point. But 
Him shooting 3 for 13, 12 points. You knew it was going to be a long night for the Orange men, as you saw there. And it was pretty much no contest. Houston was able to go ahead and play from in front. We're in control of this game. You didn't think in the least that Syracuse were going to mount a comeback or at least be in this game late. So Saturday, you got your one game where you kind of looked at it and said, all right, we had two very good games prior to that. And the one game, although it was competitive, Villanova and Baylor, but you had the stinker there at the nightcap, which led into yesterday's games. And yesterday, you had the three games which were not good. When you look at Gonzaga disposing Creighton, no surprise there. Same for Michigan topping Florida State. Too physical. Florida State is pretty much, I'm not going to say a carbon copy of Michigan, but at the same time, they have a tough time scoring where Michigan obviously can score. And then USC over Oregon. As I said, the Pac-12 reigning supreme here so far in this tournament, but USC moves on. And then the game of the day and possibly of the weekend was the UCLA-Alabama game. I know the Oral Roberts-Arkansas game, people are going to argue that probably being the best game of the weekend. But when you had a situation there at the end of the game, at 63-62, where Herbert Jones goes to the line for Alabama and he misses both free throws and kind of thought to yourself right then and there that, oh, geez, if they're going to lose a game based on these free throws, that's going to be one that not only... Herbert Jones is not going to be able to sleep, but all of Alabama, their basketball team, coaches, etc., they're going to be sick to their stomachs and going to be wondering what was left there on the court were a bunch of missed free throws, and they shot terribly from the free throw line the whole game. But when you have a scenario where even though with six seconds to go and UCLA making two free throws to make it 65-62, and then you have the hero of the moment, Alex Reese, Draining that three, which was an NBA three, and to push the game into overtime, the madness was in full effect once again, and you thought to yourself, wow, Alabama, second life, you would think going into overtime that they would look at that, breathe a sigh of relief, and then maybe turn on the Jets, take off, and win where UCLA would just be sick to their stomach, and knowing that they were that close from going ahead to playing in an Elite Eight, and then what happened? They scored the first five points in the overtime, 23 points in the overtime total, which is crazy to think. But the Bruins are victorious. They move on as they beat Alabama and knock off the two seed there in their region. And UCLA looking to go back to the Final Four for the first time since 2008 with the teams coached by Ben Howland. And it's interesting, in a year where you have no Duke, no Kentucky, North Carolina and Kansas long gone, Here is UCLA one step away from getting back to the Final Four after starting off this tournament, as I mentioned, being one of the first four after winning against Michigan State. And now here they are just 40 minutes away from playing in the semifinals of the entire tournament. And even though you still have these games to be played over the course of the next two games, and I'll get to momentarily, but this is one tournament and thinking back over the last few years, and I get you've had the big game Villanova in North Carolina with Chris Jenkins making that last-minute shot, and I believe that was the last year that the tournament was thrilling and was pretty much start to finish. Or I don't want to say every game was great, but it was one tournament that was made to remember. Where over the last few years, the tournament has just kind of been flat. Yes, you've had your moments. Yes, you've had upsets, but not to the extent where 
everything came down to the wire or you've had these double digit seeds still playing here late in the tournament this is the one year where you finally got that and again a lot of that could be based on the way the year unfolded the situations with COVID throughout the country with some of these campuses some of these teams when you look at how it affected Virginia even Kansas to a certain extent we see VCU not even play a game against Oregon not that we expected VCU to do anything big in the tournament but with the unfamiliarity with all of the circumstances that led up until this tournament I thought it was going to be a crapshoot and here we are now with a few games that could hang in the balance with teams that either haven't been to a Final Four in forever, teams that are looking to continue that magic carpet ride, whether your name is the Oregon State or even UCLA for that matter. Because even with them being an 11 seed, I'm sure not a lot of people thought that they would be here at this point considering where they started. And now as we look forward to the games here over the course of the next two nights, Tonight kicks off Oregon State and Houston at 7.15, followed by Arkansas and Baylor. And I'm going to pull for Oregon State big time. Not that I got anything against Houston. And we understand that Houston's had a big year here. I wouldn't be surprised if they put the clamps down on Oregon State to where they suffocate them. Again, Houston doesn't have the sexiness or any of the big names that you're going to see throughout the rest of this tournament with some of the other teams. But they are formidable. But... I'm going to go with the Magic Carpet ride. I'm going to say Oregon State. I understand that this could pretty much fizzle and burn out here where they run out of gas. I could see that. But I just have a hunch with Oregon State and with the way they played and how they performed here that as long as they're able to score, because Houston isn't a team that's going to light up the scoreboard by any stretch, but if Oregon State could somehow find a way to get some key baskets, Obviously, you have to make stops. I mean, that's no, I'm not breaking any ground with that. Oregon State's going to pretty much have to win this game by just putting up a bunch of points here against Houston. And I understand that people may say, well, Jay Reels, isn't that the name of the game? Yes, but if Houston's going to put forth the defensive effort like you saw the other night against Syracuse, and I'm not trying to make Syracuse out to be the 96 team with John Wallace or even the Carmelo team of 2003, but the point of the matter is, is that if they somehow, some way could break through that Houston defense, and be able to put up some points, I don't know if Houston's going to be able to hang with them in that regard. So that's why I like Oregon State, although I can see Houston winning this game. And as far as Baylor goes, I think Baylor, they are primed to make it to a final. I picked Baylor and Gonzaga. I just figured that those are the two best teams in the nation that they will go ahead and represent and play against one another for a national title. And Arkansas is going to be tough. I could see this being a high-scoring game. I could see this even possibly coming down to the wire. It's one of those that I think the first one to 80 wins. It could be that type of game. But I see Baylor winning only because based on what they've done this year and I just have a gut feeling that with everything that they've had to endure with their own COVID issues and having to restart and stub their toe a little bit along the way, especially in the conference championships. But now, here we are in the tournament, and they play pretty well. And you look at the Villanova game the other day and how resourceful they were and how they were able to adjust. I think that's going to be big for Baylor here moving forward. And then when you close out the Final Four, or the Elite Eight, I should say, to get to a Final Four, 
USC and Gonzaga, we know about the undefeated season. Gonzaga's played so well. They didn't have to sweat out any of these games. The big question here is, is this going to be a game where they sweat out? USC, as we know, has played exceptionally well here. I could see it being a thing where maybe USC comes out firing it from the start. But I think it's going to be too much Gonzaga. I think if Gonzaga's going to have a nail-biter of a game, it's going to be in the Final Four, whether it's in the semifinal or in the final itself. Just look back to Kentucky in 2015 when they had that undefeated run and we saw what happened there where they lost to Wisconsin in the Final Four game. So I can see Gonzaga, I'm not going to say pull away in the second half. Who knows with these games, but Gonzaga's just played so well here in this tournament that I can't see them slipping up here. Can they have a moment early in the game where USC is playing well and they're riding high? Oh, of course. I could definitely see that, but I think it's going to be too much Gonzaga and it'll be too much for USC to overcome to try to beat the number one seed in all of college basketball. And then with UCLA and Michigan, unlike what we've seen with Oregon State, I think that it's all going to come to a screeching halt here against Michigan. Now, I had Michigan playing in this game against Alabama, not getting to a Final Four. But with the way UCLA has performed, and you got to give it up, I could just see this being a game where UCLA is just going to run out of gas. Number one, they had to go into overtime against Alabama, which expends a lot of energy. We understand that the UCLA team and what they've done here with their key players. I know Johnny Juzung fouled out of the game there yesterday, but I think it's going to be too much Michigan Jawan Howard has his team focused, has his team ready. They played very well here in this tournament. And it's not to discount anything that UCLA has done to this point. But when you have a team that's been pretty much from start to finish, and even though Michigan had their hiccups there toward the end of the college basketball season and even into the tournament, losing to Ohio State, and I thought that they were going to be dangerous going into this tournament, but I didn't even think they were going to make it to the Final Four. But I think they're going to be primed. They're not going to sleep on UCLA. They know damn well that to get to that next step, they're going to have to beat this upstart team. And I think with everything that I just said before about UCLA, especially just them playing an overtime game and them having to play that extra game in the first four, I think will be too much and Michigan will move on to play in a Final Four. We shall see. We hope that the games are competitive. When you get this deep into the tournament, Especially with the lower seeds, you just want them to play well. You don't want this to be a thing where they get blitzed 24 to 6 in the first part of the game and then they got to play uphill the rest. Because generally those teams that get off to those slow starts or get off to those really bad starts, for them to come back, and we understand basketball, it's a game of runs, things could change, anything could happen, understood. But I just cannot see a team, whether it is Oregon State or even UCLA for that matter, if they dig themselves too deep of a hole for them to come out of or even be able to come out of and then somehow take the lead and be in the game, I can't see that happening against superior opponents and that's what those teams are facing here as we are now down to the Elite Eight. And when we get back next week, of course, with the Final Four this coming Saturday and then the Championship Game Monday, obviously I'll preview the Championship Game But if you want to get any type of hot takes or anything that happens to transpire over these next two nights, these next four games, you can, of course, check me out on any of my social media feeds, whether it's on Instagram. Just go to the J Reels podcast. That's my handle. Or on Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number, or Facebook, 
the J Reels podcast fan page, and you could get any of my updates or my thoughts, feelings about these games through any of those social media accounts. A couple other news and notes here in college basketball. Well, one thing I want to say is that the women's has moved on to their next round, and the one team that has been knocked off from the tournament as a one seed is NC State, as Indiana was able to upend them in a quest to make it to the Final Four for the women's sport. We know the other three number ones are still intact, and of course those one seeds are Shocker, UConn, South Carolina, and Stanford. So those three teams are still alive in the tournament and we'll continue to keep our eyes on what the women's do here as I don't really follow the women's sport and not because I don't want to or because I don't care. It has nothing to do with that. It's just that I don't really follow the sport unless we get into this time in the year and especially when you have a team like UConn as we know the history there with Gino Oriema and what he's been able to do as the head coach of the women's Huskies. And to me, the... Women's Huskies are, in my eyes, equivalent to the Duke Blue Devils of the men's game. So anytime that Oriema and company could be ousted, I will jump for joy. But not that I'll lose any sleep if they do happen to win another title. But at the same time, anytime they get bumped off, I could at least rejoice a little bit because they've just been dominant forever. And rightfully so, because they've been able to get the best players over the years. And we could go through the whole list from Rebecca Lobo on down as they've been perennial winners in Stores, Connecticut. So we have uh, those three teams left standing with NC State gone and a couple of coaching changes where Indiana has their new coach in a one Mike Woodson. Yes, that Mike Woodson, the former Nick coach, as well as the former Atlanta Hawks coach. He becomes the next head coach of the Indiana Hoosiers. So let's see if he could put them into prominence over the course of the next few years. And then Shaka Smart, The former Texas coach, and we saw how they got bounced by Abilene Christian. Well, he moves on to Marquette to become the coach of the Golden Eagles. So he becomes a part of the Big East. So we'll get a chance to see Shaka Smart quite a bit here uh, in the years to come. And that pretty much wraps up the college basketball March Madness segment. I'm not going to turn my attention to the NBA because I want to get into some baseball. I want to preview the Major League Baseball scene I want to touch on a few things that's happening in baseball as well as give you my over-under numbers. Then from there, I'll give you my NBA take as well as the NHL and what's happening there. NFL with the couple of moves that were made as well as the 17th game that's going to be added onto the schedule, which ugh, it just sickens my stomach. And I get a lot of people are probably going to think, Jay Reels, what are you talking about? I get that I'm in the minority probably when it comes to that, but that'll come on later as well as A couple other news and notes before we say goodbye. So here we are, just three days away from a Major League Baseball season that will start on April Fool's. Sadly, I wish I could say it could be an April Fool's for the baseball fan because you might as well enjoy this baseball season, suck the life out of it, go to games if you can, because you may not see the sport this time next year, because as I've said time after time after time, Armageddon is coming. And I understand that that's a topic for another day, especially at the end of this baseball season. But the reason why I bring this up now is because you're having a 162-game season for the first time in two years. You could look at the 1st of April as your team, whether it's the 
Colorado Rockies, the Baltimore Orioles, a team that's not expected to do anything and be out of the race by Memorial Day. Or if you're a team like the LA Dodgers that's looking to repeat or the New York Yankees that are looking to get to a World Series for the first time and believe it or not, 12 years. Or my team, the Mets, which I'll get to in a moment. But the baseball season on a whole right now, as I look at it, I wonder what the players are thinking. I'm sure they're not looking ahead at labor agreements and collective bargaining agreements, anything like that, to where it's going to affect their game because they know that they're just looking at the next game on the schedule, the next game on the calendar, focused, ready to go. They're not even thinking about what the Players Association are going to do. That's for Tony Clark and those guys to deal with throughout the course of the year. But the one thing I will say, I think this will be a very good, and not only that, but a very intriguing baseball season. You have, as always, a lot of players going in different places. You have a lot of teams that look like they may be making a run, not only to the playoffs, but even beyond to try to get deep into a postseason and hopefully be one of the two teams representing in the National American League to play in a World Series and hopefully win it. So when I talk about teams like the San Diego Padres or the Chicago White Sox, those two teams in particular, we know about the Yankees and the Dodgers and some of the big teams that are out there. But when I look at baseball on a whole, and especially, obviously, breaking down both leagues, the National League is by far more competitive than the American League, where the American League is super top-heavy. And that's the one thing, if you're looking at a season where anything could happen, we know, there could be surprises, you may see a team that you weren't expecting to be in a pennant race in August and September, understood, we could break all that until we're blue in the face. But how I look at it is, is that you have a National League that you could have anywhere up to eight or nine teams fight for those five playoff spots. And remember, it's just five. Last year was the eight, and we get it because of the 60 games. Of course, there's no DH in the National League, so you got to keep that in mind as well. But you're going to have these seven-inning doubleheaders if COVID does happen to play into effect where teams aren't going to be able to play games on certain days. Same for the 10th inning. You're going to have the runner on second base. You'll have that rule for this year as well, which I don't like. But I do like that the DH is not in effect, although for the National League, that may suck a bit because if you're a Met fan like myself, that means Dom Smith's going to have to play some left field, not play a lot of first base unless he's going to spell Pete Alonso for, for time when it comes to that position. But when the National League, when you look at the breakdown of it, like I said, you have in upwards of at least eight teams, maybe nine, nine can be a little bit of a stretch, but you look at the four teams in the National League East, And I'm not going to include the Marlins here. I know they made the playoffs last year, but again, 60 games. But you have those four teams where the Braves, Nationals, Mets, and Phillies will be jockeying for position all year. You have the Brewers, who have been improved, to go along with the Cardinals, as well as the Chicago Cubs. And I only throw them in the mix because they still have key players there. I get that Schwarber's gone, John Lester as well, Hugh Darvish. Their pitching is definitely compromised. But they still have a pretty decent lineup led by Anthony Rizzo, Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, which he's in a walk year. So you know he's going to want to do anything close to an MVP season that he had back, what was it, 2016. So if he could get himself in line with 
that type of play, you know that that could go a long way for the Cubs this year. And then you have the Dodgers and Padres. So right there, with the four in the National League East, the three in the Central, and then the two in the West, you have about nine teams that are going to jockey for five positions. Of course, you got to take out the three divisional leaders. So really, it's six for two. And if you're Rob Manfred and company in Major League Baseball, you're going to sign up for that in blood. Whereas in the American League, like I said, very top-heavy. If you're looking at the Yankees, I can't even say the Astros because they have taken a step back. But in an AL West, which is pretty much weak, and even though the Angels have made some moves this offseason, but you can't expect them to all of a sudden make that jump, at least for me, based on a good lineup and a starting pitching that is very suspect to say the least. The A's, you expect for them to fall off, but they always seem to be hanging around or overachieving as we've seen over the last few years. The White Sox, that has a lot of promise and has made some moves, not only just this past season, but also the last couple of off-seasons, to now looking to get past a first round and go deep into October with a long run. But they did lose a major component to the team where Eloy Jimenez, the outfielder, who's going to be out five to six months with a torn pectoral tendon that he tried to rob a home run here over the last week during the exhibition season where I guess by him jamming it up against the wall, tore that tendon in his chest. So now you're not going to see him probably the whole year. Uh, you would think. Then you have a team in their division like the Minnesota Twins and what they've done over the last two years but cannot get out of their own way when the calendar turns to October as they've lost, I believe it's like 18 straight postseason games, which, how is that humanly possible for a baseball team? Uh, any team for that matter. But to lose 18 straight postseason games? Uh. But you have the Twins there and then the Yankees, by far, they're the class of the American League. And when the Yankees, even though they're starting off this season with one of their key guys on the IL and a one Luke Voigt, who has a torn meniscus or a partial tear where he's going to be out until May. And that's the one thing the Yankees are hoping and praying for is that their players, for the most part, made it through the spring training and camp injury-free up until Luke Voigt. But you only hope that this isn't the beginning of another mass unit type season where guys like Aaron Judge, guys like Giancarlo Stanton, even Luis Severino coming back from Tommy John surgery, all these players that have just been nicked up or have been out of the lineup for chunks, weeks, months at a time. Even if that's the case, the Yankees will make it to the postseason, but they can't afford to have these guys be out of the lineup more often than they have been over the last few years. So whatever it is that they've been doing this offseason, more yoga, more stretching as opposed to hitting the weights, so far it's done pretty well if you're the Bombers. But those are the two differences there in contrast between the National League and the American League where there's a little bit more unpredictability in the National League with all those teams that I mentioned. And then the American League, uh, what do you have? You have the Yankees and to me it's everybody else. So now as we break this down, and I'll go through the divisions quick, I'll give you my World Series prediction, I'll also talk about the Mets and give you their prospects for the year. I'll start off in the American League, I know the 
Rays, a lot of people may think, well, what about the Rays, J-Reels? Look what they've done last year, and even the last couple of years for that matter. Winning 96 games two years ago, two games away from winning a World Series last year. They did lose some key pieces to their rotation this past year, trading Blake Snell and then Charlie Morton going to Atlanta. But to me, this is the Yankees division to lose. Uh, There's no way that they're going to be in a nail-biting, white-knuckling type of pennant race. I'm not going to say they're going to win by 15 games, but if any team is going to be of a threat in this division, it may be Tampa, it may be Toronto, but I would think that the Yankees are going to coast to the division title. I'd be shocked if that's not the case. Now, granted, if injuries to their rotation or to their lineup permeate this roster the way it's been the last couple of years, then who knows? All bets are off. But the one thing I'll say, if you're the Yankees and there's a little bit of concern, you're not in love with your starting pitching, even with the reinforcements this offseason of Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyon. And again, you don't know what you're going to get out of Luis Severino. Domingo Herman, who from what I've read has had actually a pretty good spring. But what are you going to get from him as far as between his ears after everything that he's been through over the last couple of years off the field? The lineup's going to be intact. They're going to mash like crazy. But the sad part is they don't have any left-handed prominence in their lineup, which is not good come October because if you have a right-handed power lineup and there's not enough balance in between, that's where you have a lot of these droughts that you've seen over the last few Octobers if you're a Yankee fan. So that's not to say that they can't go to a World Series or can't win a World Series with a predominantly right-handed hitting lineup. But again, you would like to have a little bit of a lefty-righty to not only have the lineup stretched, but also have a little bit more balance. And then again, when you're looking at guys like Gary Sanchez, who's not had a good spring, and I thought a long time ago they should have traded. Check the receipts. Go back to the archives on some of these podcasts where I said, if you're the Yankees, even after last season, when he batted 140 and is not a good defensive catcher, considering he had two more years left on his contract, he's still young, that you could probably fetch a starting pitcher or even a left-handed bat to put in that lineup because of his age and because that he's not going to put a burden on your payroll that the Yankees should have jettisoned him, but they kept him and... We'll see what happens. But I think it's the Yankees division by far. Toronto, they have a lot of young players. I know George Springer, who has an oblique right now. They say that he may be out to start the season. I think it's going to be too much and too tall of an order for Toronto to compete with the Yankees. I think they'll have their moments. I'm not going to say they're going to not play well this year. But I don't know. Is there something about a team where you're just going to rely too much on your young core and you don't really have a veteran core on that team despite George Springer being imported from Houston I just can't see them competing with the Yankees over the course of 162 games and not having great starting pitching on top of that and the Rays it's almost like the Oakland A's you got to see it to believe it I could see them again having a good year but are they going to be competing with the Yankees I say not and the Red Sox and Orioles I think they're just going to be on the outside looking in the Central I like the White Sox, even with Jimenez out, and that's a huge blow. But the Twins, I think that they're going to be the team to beat in that division. Cleveland, they're like the last one standing, even after Lindor's gone. But you still have Jose Ramirez, you still have Shane Bieber, you have some pieces there. 
And I think they'll compete in that division. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to be between the Twins and White Sox fighting it out for the AL Central. Tigers and Royals, you can forget about. Out West, I can't see any other team other than the Astros winning. All right, you can say the A's because they won a division last year. But again, and yes, people can say Jay Reels, but they've won the last couple of years. They've been in the postseason. All right, they haven't had much success in the postseason, but they, but it's the Oakland A's. I just, I don't know. I guess I'd have to give them the edge to win a division in the A's and Houston with their pedigree and what they're able to do. They lost Springer and that's a big loss, but they have Kyle Tucker. He's a guy that's probably going to be the replacement for George Springer. And you still have Jose Altuve. You still have Carlos Correa. You still have Michael Brantley, who they brought back, Alex Bregman. So the lineup is still formidable. Uh, it's going to be between them and Houston and who knows what Verlander remember he has Tommy John you're probably not going to see him there maybe until August at the earliest now other than that the Angels can they be a surprise I guess they can but I just don't see it and Seattle and Texas you can forget about that's how the American League shapes up for me as far as the National League goes I'll give you a quick preview for the Mets here I think the Mets have as good as a shot to make it to the postseason. I think more so as a wild card. For whatever the reason, a lot of people look at the Mets number. ninety. I think it was 90 going into the season. Or 92, whatever it is. I have to look it up again. But the one thing I fear for the Mets, as crazy as this is going to sound, is their pitching. And no, not just their bullpen. As we all know, their bullpen's been a disaster over the years. But other than Jacob deGrom, I mean, who are you really going to rely on in that rotation? Noah Syndergaard's probably not going to come back until July at the earliest. And Syndergaard, who knows how he's going to be. I know he's been throwing 97 on the gun here during the spring. But Syndergaard, his stock has waned here when he was healthy in 2019. You also have Marcus Stroman, who did not pitch at all last year. And he should be primed, refreshed, and ready to go. But he's a third starter at best. Carlos Carrasco starting off the year on the I.L. with a hamstring tear. David Peterson, all right, was a surprise last year, but do you expect a lot out of David Peterson? Are you going to push all your chips to the middle of the table when it comes to him? So I can't trust their rotation at this moment. We know Steven Matz is in Toronto right now, and even then, Matz wasn't great while he was a Met here, especially over the last couple of years. So that's the one thing that worries me. Now, offensively, they should be fine. I know you have the Lindor contract hanging over everybody's head, and I get that a lot of people have been actually a little bit, I don't want to say in outrage, but you have some circles where people are looking at Lindor being signed long-term more of a priority than Michael Conforto, and that's where the outrage lies because Conforto obviously is a guy that was drafted by the Mets. He's a homegrown player. Although Scott Boris is his agent, but we know who our owner is, so thankfully we don't have to worry about, oh, whether or not he's going to stay as far as them being able to pony up the money. I'm talking about the Met front office, that is. But they you have some circles that are just like, oh, why are you going to focus on Lindor when we have Conforto, who's just as important? Well, obviously you're going to look at Lindor first because you traded for the guy and gave up two big pieces in Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez. And granted, are these guys going to be Hall of Famers? No, but at the same time, they had to give up quite a bit to get as well as some prospects. 
And to have him here as a one-year rental for him just to say bye-bye, of course he's going to be more of a priority. Because, let's face it, Lindor, when you look at the top players in baseball, he ranks there in the top 10. Does Michael Conforto? And I like Conforto, don't get me wrong, but uh, Conforto, I think not. So therefore, the priority is going to be more focused on the guy they just brought in that could be the face of this franchise to go along with the Jacob DeGroms of the world and even Michael Conforto's, but it's the big smile, it's the one of the more important positions on the diamond, and for him to be signed, sealed, and delivered here, hopefully over the course of the next 72 hours, will be paramount because as we know, if he's not signed on the dotted line, chances are he's going to say goodbye. Come November, whatever date that is, the 4th, you know, 72 hours after the World Series. To me, when I look at the season, it's all going to be based on the pitching. Hitting's going to be in and out, up and down. You know how the season, the ebbs and flows, etc. But you can expect Jacob DeGrom to be great. He's been phenomenal here during the spring training camp. Other than that, it's pretty much a toss-up. I could see the Mets in the race. Could they be in the race for the division? You're looking more wild card if you ask me. And I'm not saying this to be reverse jinx. I think just like they did in 2019, I think they're going to fall short. I think they're going to be a team anywhere between 84 and 90. I think their ceiling could be 90. But I can see them being 87 and 75. And I don't think that's going to be enough. Especially when you have the competition, as I mentioned earlier, in the other divisions, including their own. Now, as we go through the division, the Braves, they've won a division three straight years. I can't see why they won't make it to be a fourth. The Nationals, with Strasburg and him having to nurse that injury, and with Max Scherzer, who's now in his walk year. Talk about time flying. He's in the walk year of his contract, and he's getting older. Now, we understand he's still Max Scherzer, and the name on the back of the jersey counts, but... He is in his mid-30s. So, and he's prone to give up the long ball. Is he going to revert back to his Cy Young caliber 2015 to 2019 run? Or is this now going to be the beginning of the end for the three-time Cy Young Award winner? And the Nationals have made some moves in their lineup, bringing in Schwarber, Josh Bell from Pittsburgh. Their lineup should be very good. But you also got to worry about their pitching too. And you got Patrick Corbin there, who's also very good. But with between them, the Phillies, it's going to be a Royal Rumble, if you ask me, to who's going to be second to Atlanta. And the Marlins, I expect them to be good, but I don't expect them to do much either. Because they're still building up the ladder there as they try to replenish that farm system, as they try to get as many young guys in there as possible. And you saw some promise there last year, although 60 games... But over the course of 162, I can't see them being part of the race. And in the central, you have the Brewers who have made some strides and looking to get themselves back to where they were two, three years ago, where Christian Yelich was the perennial MVP candidate and even did win an MVP in 2018. The Cardinals bringing in Nolan Arenado to go along with Paul Goldschmidt and a very good starting staff. I think the Cardinals are a team that's probably going to win the division. I'm not going to say going away, but the Cardinals always find a way. That's the one thing about that team. When you think that they're down and out, when you think that, oh, it looks like they're going to have a lost season, 
Think about this, people. They didn't play for 17 days on the schedule last year. And they still made it to the postseason and played 58 out of 60 games. And now they have arguably, if not in my opinion, the best third baseman on the planet to bookend the other corner in Paul Goldschmidt to go along with Yadier Molina, who's a Hall of Famer in my eyes. There's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. And a very good starting staff led by Jack Flaherty, Miles Mikolas, the vet in Carlos Martinez. You still have Adam Wainwright who's hanging around there but still brings a lot of experience and the presence in the locker room as a longtime Cardinal. And he and Molina are two of the holdovers not only from the 2011 World Series team but from the 2006 World Series team just to show you how long they've been in the Cardinal organization. So I like St. Louis coming out of the Central there. Even with the Brewers, the Cubs, I think the Cubs are going to have a long year. Uh, They have no pitching. Obviously, they traded Darvish away. We talked about Lester now. He's in Washington. Got Kyle Hendricks. I mean, he's the guy you're going to rally around. He's a good pitcher, but you have the Cubs there, and then the Reds and Pirates are just going to bottom out there as far as the Central goes. And then in the West, it's going to be Dodgers, Padres, and then everybody else. San Francisco may be competitive, but you don't expect them to do much. Same for Arizona. And then the Rockies arguably could be the worst team in the sport. And that's saying a lot considering you have the Pirates in a division right above them. So that's how I look at baseball overall with the divisions. And again, I could spend a lot of time on this, but obviously I want to try to keep this as compact and concise as possible and just give you all the major tidbits. And before I get to my World Series pick, I want to give you my over-unders, which I actually went through. And it's funny enough, as I look at how the numbers are, where the biggest number of all is the LA Dodgers at 104 and a half. And at the very bottom is the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, there is one team that I picked that's low. I don't like to pick on teams that have low numbers unless I feel there may be some upside. And I'll start off with the over in the Miami Marlins only because they have two good pitchers at the top in Sandy Alcantara and Sixto Sanchez. Those two guys are going to be beasts in the future. And if those two guys are able to pitch up to their potential and what they've done here, over, especially over the last year, the Marlins are going to be in a lot of games. Now, their bullpen, off the top of my head, I can't tell you how good their bullpen's going to be. I didn't watch a lot of Marlins. I didn't watch pretty much any innings of any baseball game during the course of the preseason. But with the Marlins and their young core, and they're going to lose a ton of games, But with their number being 73 and a half, I figured if these guys are healthy, and they also have some other good arms in their rotation as well, but they're headlined by those two, I think they could win 75, 76, 77 games. They just got to be 74 and 88. If they could do that, it's a victory. So I'm going to pick them as my first over. My second over, I'm going to pick the Twins, and that goes to my guy, Headstyle in uh, Minnesota. The Twins, and they've made some improvements to their rotation as well over the last year. Kenta Maeda was one. And they also brought in Jay Happ from the Yankees, who I'm sure he'll get his 32-33 starts and be that third or fourth guy in the rotation. That's headlined by Jose Berrios. 
And the Twins, as we know, can mash the ball. I know Eddie Rosario's gone, but you still have guys like Miguel Sano, Josh Donaldson. They bring back Nelson Cruz, Max Kepler, Jorge Polanco. So they still have a lot of thump in that lineup. And I think they're going to mash their way somewhere in the low to mid-90s. So I'm picking the Twins isn't over. And just like I said before, I'm picking the St. Louis Cardinals for everything that I said. The Cardinals are going to be a team that they're going to have the combination of the youth in the rotation and veterans on the field. And they always seem to find a way. They're one of those teams that year in and year out, they may not make it to the postseason every year, but they do have their stretches where when you look at the Dodgers, you look at the Padres, you even look at the Mets and some of the other teams, and they're like, oh yeah, how can we forget about the Cardinals? This team's pretty good. And with that number being 88, I could see them winning 90 or being somewhere north of that. So those are my three overs that I've chosen. And as far as my unders, the first under I'm going to pick, and it's a little bit risky, but only because, again, like I said, they're going to ask a lot from their young players. And with them starting the season in Dunedin, because remember, they can't play north of the border due to the government and the coronavirus guidelines and restrictions that they have there. But the Toronto Blue Jays, I think they're going to have a tough year. They're going to play their first month in Dunedin and then probably move to Buffalo after that because they can't play their whole season down there. They're playing in their spring training complex, which is fine. And I believe it's been upgraded to suit for Major League Baseball. But once you get into May and June and rainy season down in Florida, it's going to be impossible to play these games. As you well know, the Marlins, they have a retractable roof down in Miami and Tampa has the eyesore there at the trop. So knowing that they're going to play their first month of games down there, which I could see they're already comfortable with their environment. They've been down there since the middle of February, but then now they're going to have to displace themselves from May to go to Buffalo and then play there for the rest of the year. I think it's going to be too taxing for this team. So I'm going to pick them as an under at 86. I like their talent. Not crazy about the rotation. But they're going to be a little bit nomadic here in this first couple of months of the season. So with them having to move around a lot. And just the travel is going to take their toll. I mean, think about this. I'm not looking at their schedule right away. But coming from Florida in that first month. They're going to have to go to the north. They come back south. It's not as if Buffalo is a hop, skip, and a jump from the Bronx or a hop, skip, and a jump from Boston. They're going to have to travel a little bit to start off the season. So I think it's going to be a little bit of wear and tear, especially when you get to the middle of the season. That's why I look at Toronto as an under. My second under, I'm going to say the Cubs, only because this run here with all the success, and I understand they made it to the postseason last year, It's a little risky, but I just don't like the way this team is shaping up, not only from a starting rotation standpoint, but also losing key guys in their lineup. And on top of that, unless Chris Bryant's going to revisit 2016 and go back in that time machine, he's a guy, I'm not going to say he's shot, but you got to worry whether or not he's going to be anything close to what his former MVP self was. And I'm not trying to say he has to carry the team, And I'm not trying to say he has to be the man on this team. But with Baez up on a walk year, and I can see if this team comes out of the gate slow or is not playing well in the first couple of months of the season, I can see them checking out. I can see them being that type of team and not having that rotation. 
and not being able to compete with the Cardinals and even the Brewers in their division, I could see it being a long year. So their number is 79.5. So I'm going to pick them as an under. And again, it's risky, but I'm just going to pick them as an under. They're number two. And my third and final under, and this last one is also risky too, my final pick, is the San Diego Padres 92 as an under. I think the expectations are through the roof, and understandably so. They brought in two big pitchers, pitchers that have performed in the postseason and are familiar with postseason territory, so they shouldn't be shaking in their boots come October. But with the new contract for a one Fernando Tatis, which is not really going to take into play for another four years. Because if you remember, he's getting that contract, it's backloaded. He's only going to make, I guess, five, six million dollars only in upwards to 34 million over the next four years. And then after that, that's where he's going to get the big bucks. But even with this team being together for a couple of years and with the imports of pitchers that they've had here this offseason, and with the Dodgers, you know they're going to try to do anything in their power to squash the team down the highway that's two hours south of them. I know it's a bad division too. But I don't know. I figure that the Padres, they're going to have, I think they're going to have a good season. And would it shock me if they go over 92? Absolutely not. But just for the hell of it, this is one that I'm just throwing to the wind and see how far it goes. And I'll look like an idiot when they're 60 and 33 come the middle of July and I'll be chomping at the bit wondering why in the hell did I pick the Padres but hey you never know last year they were 34 and 26 after 60 games and if you spread that out over 162 they won't even make it to uh 92 wins and granted I get it Snell and also you Darvish but you also got to wonder too they have a manager there Jace Tingler who knows if he's going to be too much into the books, too much into the analytics where most young managers are. You figure that managing doesn't really come into the equation until you get to October. But still, again, this is a big time roll of the dice. So I'm going to take the Padres as an under at 92. So again, to go through it, my overs, Miami Marlins at 73.5, Minnesota Twins 89.5, and the St. Louis Cardinals at 88. And my unders are the Cubs at 79.5, the Toronto Blue Jays at 86, and the Padres at 92. Those are my over-unders for the 2021 season. And my World Series pick, I said this last year, I got to do this again. Oh my God. I'm going to pick a Yankee-Dodger final, which is apropos because that's going to segue into my next segment. But the Dodgers... Trevor Bauer, their starting rotation, Bueller, of course, Clayton Kershaw. We know the Dodgers are loaded. Do we even have to go there and talk about them? And the same for the Yankees. They're by far the best two teams in each of their leagues. And I know that's chalk. Trust me, I would like to pick St. Louis and the White Sox or even St. Louis and let's say Houston or something like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, the Yankees are due to go back to World Series. And to me, this is the one year that they could do it. Last year, you want to give them a pass only because of the 60-game season? Fine, you could do so. You also want to say that the Astros were in their way between 2017-2019. I understand the Red Sox beat them in 2018. Okay, fine, no problem. Uh, to me, there's no excuse for them to not make it to a World Series. And the Dodgers, 
I know that after a 60-game season, maybe they're hungry to play the whole 162 and for them to say, okay, for those who delegitimize our World Series championship last year, we're going to go out and prove to you this year that it was even more legit. And I believe they're going to have a little chip on their shoulder in order for them to get back and win a World Series. And I think the Dodgers are going to win six. There's your baseball preview, people. And a lot more of that to come as opening day is just three days away. Now, let me segue that to my NBA, which is the theme here to kick us off with the association. And I get that for the die in the wool NBA fan, especially my age or around my age and older, that when you look at what happened here over the course of the trade deadline where the Nuggets made some big moves, bringing in not only JaVale McGee for some interior presence, but also Aaron Gordon. Now, Gordon doesn't have to be the man there in Denver, so he should be able to run up and down the floor. He'll get his high-flying dunks from Jamal Murray. I don't know how he's going to do in a half-court set, especially with a guy like Nikola Jokic, but we know Jokic is a great big man who passed the ball. Maybe you could see Gordon coming off back screens for dunks, layups, etc. So, can't discount what the Nuggets have done, and you could also look at what the Heat have done. Not only did they trade away last week Myers Leonard to bring in Trevor Ariza, which is pretty much a glue guy. It's an under-the-radar type of trade because he's the one that could not only bring his experience but also defense and fits in the mold of a Miami Heat player. But you also bring in Victor Oladipo from the Rockets and you didn't have to give up any of your young guys, whether your name is Duncan Robinson or Tyler Harrow. But now you have Oladipo, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler to be part of your big three there in Miami to make a push to get back to a final. But when it's all said and done, when you see what the Brooklyn Nets, and I can't just put this all on the Nets because when LaMarcus Aldridge from a couple weeks back, as I stated here on the podcast, where they were going to separate and part ways, knowing that Aldridge was going to be a guy that's not going to get much burn, was not going to be in a rotation, and it was time for him to move on. A lot of people thought Aldridge was going to go to Miami. But as it is, he chose to go to Brooklyn and team up there with another Texas Longhorn and the one Kevin Durant who has not been on the court for the last month and a half due to a hamstring and you're probably not going to see him anytime in the near future. But for Aldridge to go to the Brooklyn Nets and we know what they've done here over the course of the last couple of months, bringing in James Harden, bringing in a wash, but... I'm sure on a superstar-laden team, probably a productive Blake Griffin, and now you have a Marcus Aldridge, to where the Lakers said, okay, touche, bringing in Andre Drummond, who was bought out there in Cleveland, to pretty much fill in the role for one Anthony Davis, and with LeBron out of the lineup for the considerable future, and Anthony Davis has been out longer, and who knows how much longer he's going to be out, just brings more reinforcement to a championship team that when everybody's healthy and pretty much on the floor, it looks like a collision course for an NBA final. And that's not to throw shade on the Philadelphia 76ers, on the Milwaukee Bucks, on the aforementioned Nuggets, or even the LA Clippers who brought in Rajon Rondo, which I thought was a very good move by them, to the Clippers and trading Lou Williams to Atlanta. But now... Everybody's going to look at a Brooklyn Net Laker final from here on out. It's almost as if it's going to be preordained 
that these two teams were to meet in an NBA final and watch you get Denver-Milwaukee, which I think would be an entertaining final when you look at the way the rosters have shaped up for both teams. And the Bucs didn't really do much here during the trade deadline. But the one thing for sure is, is that you got to be just, I won't go as far as saying stick to your stomach, but when you just see all these players just jump to these teams and we all understand it's all about winning a ring and it's getting the title, uh, understood, but man, it doesn't infuse a lot of intrigue throughout the course of the league when you see all these players trying to become mercenaries and stack on one side of the deck in one conference and the same goes for another conference with the Lakers. It just doesn't look good for the league. And granted, these players have now been free agents in the aforementioned Aldridge and Drummond. So it's not as if they were part of a trade here. Understood. But to see Aldridge go to Brooklyn and Drummond go to LA, it's just, oh man. It's like, why play? The, why have the playoffs? And I understand that Denver is going to be formidable in the moves that they made here on Thursday. And, you know, the Sixers, they're another team that have played well and they've had to deal with some injuries there with Embiid being out. And they could go a long way, but with the Sixers, you got to believe it when you see it. But if this isn't going to be Brooklyn and L.A., I'm sure Adam Silver and company, they're going to be choking on their kale salads if they don't see Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and all the other players that I mentioned, as well as LeBron and Anthony Davis tipping off game one of a best of seven, whether in Brooklyn or in L.A., for an NBA final. I hope it's not the case. And it's crazy because I predicted that as an NBA final prior to the start of the NBA season, not knowing that there were going to be roster overhauls in both the borough of Kings and in Southern California there with the Lakers. So the NBA fans are going to have to sit on that, not necessarily now, because as we all know, once the playoffs begin sometime in the middle of May. That's where all the focus and attention is going to go on both of those teams and more so for Brooklyn because all the pressure is going to be on them to make it to the finals because it is going to be boom or bust for them. You cannot make all these deals and think that to get to a conference final is good enough. Oh, no, 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 no. And the Lakers, if they don't make it to a final, will it be disgraceful? To me, it all depends on the health of Anthony Davis. Because LeBron, you would think he's going to come back from this ankle. And that's a tough injury to overcome. But Davis has his own leg issues to deal with. And him being as long as he is and making sure that that suck is close to 100% as possible is going to be, I'm sure, the biggest question mark going into the postseason when it does come to pass. And there's still plenty of time between now and then. I get that. We've got another six weeks to start handicapping that. But... Again, how could you not look at both Brooklyn and the Lakers prime to meet up in an NBA final at this point? Then you're not paying attention. It's almost as if the basketball gods are setting it up to be this way. But remains to be seen. And as far as the association overall, it's pretty much status quo. There's nothing really to dig into here, people. I know I talked about the trade deadline a little bit and what took place and what was happening and all the deals there. Uh, I'm not even going to get into Evan Fournier. I know Orlando was the one team, I will say this from the other side of the spectrum, where Orlando was just pawning people off because they're looking to do the, not rebuild, they're looking to deconstruct only to reconstruct. And the Magic 
there seems to be none going on down there in Disney World. So they were able to give away, I won't say give away is too strong, but when you trade away Aaron Gordon and Nikola Vucevic to Chicago, which is a good piece for the Bulls moving forward. And I know the Bulls are trying to make a playoff push here. They're at the bottom of the East as far as the 7, 8, 9, 10 goes. And then Evan Fournier goes to the Celtics, who will provide some punch if he does get into the lineup. Because remember, he just recently went on the health and safety protocol list. So who knows when we'll see him. But that's what you have there in the association when it comes to the latest and greatest. Now, one sad note, just hours after the podcast last week, you had Elgin Baylor, the all-time great Laker, one of the great forwards of all time, dating back to the 60s. And of course... He was before my time, but when you live in 2021 and you're prisoners of the moment, when you think of all-time great forwards, the name Elgin Baylor is not going to come off the lips of a lot of people that were age 35 and under. And mind you, I never saw Elgin Baylor play. But as a boy growing up following basketball, I knew that those teams in the 60s were all about Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and how they foiled against the Boston Celtics, and rightfully so. They had a zillion Hall of Famers on their team. But Elgin Baylor was Dr. J before there was Dr. J. And for him to leave us at the age of 86, thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family and look him up, people. Elgin Baylor, I get in this day and age, you're going to look at numbers and points and all-star appearances and all these other accolades, but the guy was just flat out awesome. Now, he had a knee injury, which could tell a lot of his numbers. Even at 50% of health after having that knee injury, He was still able to put up 24 and 12 or 25 and 13 in his sleep. And early on his career, before the injury, he was 38 and 16 and 31 and 19. I mean, the guy was put up astronomical numbers. So, again, Elgin Baylor passing away at the age of 86. And now we are officially one month away April 29th from the 2021 NFL Draft. So we'll segue to the National Football League. And we had a big trade there on Friday where the Miami Dolphins, who not only moved down in the draft, but then moved back up because of two trades that they made, with the first one being with San Francisco, where San Francisco currently had the 12th choice overall this year. They moved up to number three. And the Dolphins move back. Of course, the Dolphins get a ton of picks, not only just this year, but next year. And they're looking to stockpile for not only this upcoming year, but of course for the years to come to make sure that they keep up with the Joneses, whether you're the Kansas City Chiefs of the world or even the New England Patriots who had a down year, as we know, at 7-9. and nine. But knowing that they made a ton of moves here during free agency, bringing in Hunter Henry, Jonu Smith, Also, Nelson Aguilar, some defensive pieces, and Matthew Judon. Also, Jalen Mills, the corner from Philadelphia. So for the Dolphins, in order to make this trade, where now San Francisco, you wonder what's going to happen with them as far as moving up nine slots. And generally, when you move up that much, it's going to be for one of two pieces. Generally, it's going to be for a quarterback, as we all know, or a dominant pass rusher. And right now, there are no pass rushers to be found at the top of the draft. So you may think that a quarterback could be in place, even with the one Jimmy Garoppolo there. And although John Lynch and company, the GM of the Niners, has said 
that he is not looking to trade Garoppolo or they're not looking to find a replacement. But of course he has to say that. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to come out and say, yeah, we are looking to trade Garoppolo or yeah, we're done with him. We want to go in another direction. That's not going to happen. But then with the Dolphins swapping those picks, then what they did was contact Philadelphia to move up six slots to get the number sixth overall pick where the Eagles then fall back. Eagles, they could go in a million different directions. They're not going to draft a quarterback. We know that Jalen Hurts is going to be the guy going into next year. They also signed Joe Flacco to a one-year contract as a backup. So the last thing they're looking to do is draft a quarterback. But they could go in a million different directions, whether that means offensive line, whether that means maybe another wide receiver because the Jalen Rager experiment from a year ago looks like it may be a bust. And the... Dolphins, although they sent a few picks there to Philadelphia, but they have a plethora of picks, like I said. I believe they have five of the first 81, and I believe also six of the first 102 picks in this coming draft. So could you imagine that out of the first 81 picks, you have five of them in your back pocket? And maybe a six for 102. But I think with the trade with Philadelphia, one of those picks may have gone to the Eagles, But they still have a slew of picks that they could look forward to. And Miami looking to make a play here to not only be a team for this coming year as they missed the playoffs by just pretty much a game when you think about it. They were 11-5 or actually 10-6 because they lost that last game in Buffalo. And they were on the outside looking in because the Ravens were able to take over that uh, final spot as well as Indianapolis. So the Dolphins may look to go a bunch of different directions. You would think that they may take a wide receiver, whether your name is Devontae Smith, who of course played with Tua in college. Or you could look at Jamar Chase from LSU, as he may be the number one wide receiver on many draft boards this year. They could also go offensive line. Because when you look at the top of the draft right now, and it's still way too early, we know Trevor Lawrence is going to Jacksonville. But then... When you look at the throw day for the BYU quarterback in Zach Wilson, how a lot of the jet brass was there to watch his pro day, and now there may be thoughts about the Jets drafting him after he had a very good year. And it's a little scary because anytime you're going to draft a guy that just came out of nowhere and has moved up the draft board and up the ranks real quick, and to me that's a buyer beware because although you may see the talent, And he comes from a conference that does not have a lot of competition despite having that big arm and the big year that he had in college. But that doesn't mean it's going to automatically translate to the pros. So the Jets, they already have a quarterback in tow and a one Sam Darnold. But you would think once Wilson, if he does get drafted number two overall by the Jets, you know Sam Darnold is going to be on his way out to another team. And they'll be sure to get something back for him. But the Jets have to make sure they get this right because looking at just the last few years, we know the Adam Gaze experiment was a disaster. Sam Donald, who came in with a lot of high praise and a lot of promise. And right now, it's still even unknown as to whether or not he's going to be a very solid starting quarterback. Not only just maybe this year, whether it's for the Jets or somewhere else, but even for the years to come. And then you also have the kid from North Dakota State in a one-tray Lance. A lot of people love him, including the Niners, which has been rumored. And you may have up to four quarterbacks drafted in the first five picks. 
because there's also Mac Jones. Remember him from Alabama? He's a guy that's also been very popular amongst the scuttlebutt going throughout the league as far as quarterbacks go. And then you have the top tackle coming out of Oregon in Panay Sewell, who will probably go to the Cincinnati Bengals, you would think, because the Falcons pick at four, and they may look at a quarterback, and who knows, they may even take Mac Jones, considering that Matt Ryan is not going to say long in the tooth, but you got to wonder how much more he's going to last there in Atlanta, knowing that they're going to have to give the keys to another quarterback for the next 10 years or so. And you're going to have a lot of intrigue leading up to this draft next month. Who knows what the Jets are going to do, like I said. Same with the Niners. Where these quarterbacks are going to go. And the Dolphins wheeling and dealing here last week to move down, only to move back up. And to, I'm not going to say rearrange the whole draft because how I look at it is, after Miami picks at number 6, that's where the draft begins. Because then you're going to wonder from Detroit on down who's going to go where. Because you would think that a bunch of quarterbacks are going to be taken at least in three of those first six picks. I can't say for sure Atlanta is going to take a quarterback, but would you be surprised if they do? Cincinnati obviously is not going to do that since they drafted Joe Burrow last year. You figure they're going to go offensive line. And then obviously the Dolphins, they're not going to draft a quarterback either knowing that Tua is on the roster They need some playmakers to complement their quarterback. And you had a few signings this week. Odori Jackson, three years, $39 million. The former corner of Tennessee goes to the Giants. Steven Nelson, who asked for his release and was granted that in Pittsburgh, which freed up a lot of money on the cap, which was good because they have already lost Mike Hilton, Bud Dupree, and Vince Williams on defense, as well as Tyson Alualu, who was their nose tackle, but ended up coming back and decided to re-sign with Pittsburgh. He had a deal in place with Jacksonville, so he decided to nix that in the last minute, and will be back in the fold for the Steelers next year. Malcolm Butler to Arizona on a one-year deal, which is a good pickup for them, as they look to make a big push in the NFC West next year, and try to get themselves into the postseason. Sammy Watkins signs a one-year deal in Baltimore. Now, everybody's been saying how Lamar Jackson needs to have that number one receiver. He needs to have a guy that's going to stretch the field. He needs this, he needs that. We've heard it ad nauseum. But I think the stock on Sammy Watkins has gone down here over the last few years. And a lot of it is because of the offense he played within Kansas City, especially the last two years. Because when you have Travis Kelsey and Tyree Kill, they're going to be the focal points of that offense. So Watkins kind of gets lost in the shuffle there. And prior to that in LA with the Rams, remember they didn't really have the makings. They had the makings of a good offense, but they certainly weren't the high-powered offense that the Rams were hoping to get, especially when they went to the Super Bowl that one year. A lot of that has to do with the quarterback and the system. But again, now with Matthew Stafford there, you figured they're going to stretch the field and try to go down the field as opposed to being methodical. And Watkins certainly didn't fit that offensive program. And in his days in Buffalo, which seems like a decade ago, where the guy was just streaking down the field for touchdowns left and right, is he going to be that same guy to suit up for the Ravens this coming year? To me, that remains to be seen. And if you ask me quite bluntly, I don't think he's that guy anymore. Is he productive? Absolutely. Can he still play? Without question. 
But is he that guy that's going to catch that ball in the flat or catch that ball over the middle and then take it to the house for 70 yards? I don't know. All right, now a few other things here, but I need to get to this 17-game schedule that's going to start taking place this coming year as the league is expected to expand and pass this through the Board of Governors where get ready people for a weird 17-game regular season schedule where I'm sure a lot of the players are against this and Alvin Kamara was at the forefront where he tweeted that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that the 17-game season is dumb as hell. And you could add an expletive to the start of that sentence. And you know what? He's 1,000% right. And I'm in the minority when it comes to this because I know that there are a zillion NFL fans and they want more NFL games to chew at. And all they want to do is just play their fantasy leagues and have that extra game to watch and follow these players and so on and so forth. I could care less about that. As everybody knows, fantasy is not my thing and I could care. Please, if it were to disappear tomorrow, I'd jump up and down, rejoice. That's how much I can't stand it. But when you talk about player safety, when you talk about having these Thursday night games that to me, when you think about it, the games have been awful since they've implemented the Thursday night schedule. And I believe that's what now, eight, nine years. But you never have a great Thursday night game. And now you're going to add another game to make the season end on an odd number. I get you're not going to extend it to 18 games. 18 games would be a lot better than 17. But again, it goes back to my point about player safety. The players had nixed that going back a couple of years ago. But now it looks like they're going to pass this extra game where you're going to have this imbalance of a schedule where you're going to have one year the AFC have the extra home game and then the following year the NFC is going to have the extra home game Uh, to me it's just stupid why why do that that's like having an 81 game NBA season or 161 game baseball season it just doesn't add up and especially with football because every game is so important and I understand it's just an extra game to the season but why for what why just keep it at 16 if it ain't broke why fix it And the bottom line, shocker, newsflash, they're doing this for two reasons. One, the almighty dollar, as we all know. And number two, is that these networks will pay for the content because as we all know, NFL content is king. People are going to watch. Now, despite the ratings down over the last year, and you can attribute that to a million different things, because even though 97 million people watch the Super Bowl, but generally you have audiences watching in upwards of 110 million for the Super Bowl game and I guess you could attribute that to COVID bars and restaurants not being open in certain parts of the country so therefore the pandemic had their fingerprints all over this all right I'll buy that but to me as a fan of the game forever and although over the years I've been disgusted and even sick with some of the things that the NFL has done because it's all about the money, they, they would sell out their own parents to make money in this league, which is an atrocity, if you ask me. I'm just tired of just being nickeled and dimed for everything. Oh, let's have a Thursday night game. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's try to reinvent the wheel. I, I just enough. And to me, it's compromised the competition somewhat. Like I mentioned with the Thursday night game. 
And I just hate to see it. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I understand it makes sense financially, but that's all that matters. They're not looking at it from the player's health standpoint. They're not looking at it from the imbalance of the schedule, which to me is going to just be weird. And I understand that having that extra week means that you'll probably have the Super Bowl in mid-February, which maybe they're trying to target over the President's Weekend. Who knows? I know there were rumblings that the reason why they don't want to have it on President's Weekend because people are going to travel and because it's a holiday, nobody's going to watch. Now, if the NFL's really saying that, this just goes to show you how stupid they are. And I know that they may look at me and be like, huh, stupid, who are you, Jay Reels? What? You can air the Super Bowl Wednesday at 3 in the morning in the middle of February, and guess what? They'll still have 100 million people watch. So to have it on a holiday weekend where most people will be off on a Monday and don't have to worry about having to call out the next day or have to deal with the whole scope of especially being on the East Coast, ending a party early because by the time the game ends and the interviews and all that's already 11 o'clock. But it just doesn't make sense for the NFL to do this. And again, they know more than I, and I'm not trying to be Mr. NFL extraordinaire here, and I know best, etc. There are people with pay grades that are a lot higher than mine, but for all those things that I mentioned, for them to come out and say it, and if that's true, I can't say it is, but if that's true that they don't want to have it on President's Day, I mean, that's just a disgrace. I mean, how could they even think that? Because there's people that will watch the NFL draft if it's at 2 in the morning, so you mean to tell me if they're going to do that, they can't watch a Super Bowl game? That's No, I'm not buying that. So we'll see what happens there with the 17 games, and I know we're probably going to talk about it between now and the start of the season. And one other thing I want to say here, I know there was this incident with Chase Claypool this bar fight, which was actually a scuffle in a parking lot in Southern California after a video had surfaced of the incident. I believe it was on TMZ. It shows him kicking someone when he was down. Now, the video is grainy. Obviously, it's not well lit. It's dark. You can see that he's a part of this fracas. And when he made a motion to kick somebody, I don't know if it was in the head. I don't know if it was in the chest. People were saying it was in the head. Now, there haven't been any charges that have been brought up to this point. Obviously, it's not a good look on him. I'm not going to attribute it to, oh, he's a 22-year-old, what does he know, blah, blah, blah. But considering the comments that he made at the end of the season about the Browns and losing to the Browns there in the playoff game, obviously, this thing popping up, it doesn't look good. Is there a future suspension that the league may hand down or even his own team, for that matter? That remains to be seen. Something to keep an eye on. Hopefully, it'll be just a one-time thing. I don't think it's going to be anything that the Steelers have to be concerned of. Obviously, he was... I'm not going to say wrong place at the wrong time because it wasn't as if it was anything more heightened where there were weapons or there was bloodshed throughout the parking lot where people needed to go to the hospital and blood and stitches. So, thankfully, it didn't get to that level. But something to keep in mind here, if you're a Steeler fan like myself, and if he may get some time here come the start of the NFL season. Obviously, that's for down the road, but who knows if this incident goes a little bit deeper than what it once was, if charges will be brought up, etc. So, something to keep an eye on. All right, now to turn our attention to the ice in the NHL. And again, pretty much everything is status quo in the standings. 
there really isn't much to shake a stick at here. I know that there's been some teams that have made some runs, especially in the Central Division. I know you had that battle there for the four seed between Columbus as well as Chicago, the Blackhawks that looked like they were making some headway to get themselves. And they made it to the postseason last year, although they were a 12 seed. We know what happened there against Edmonton. But now you have Nashville, who has uh, played pretty well here. And I believe they're now either close to fourth or if not, maybe a point or so behind as I'm checking that as I speak. But the NHL is pretty much, again, status quo. You haven't had a lot of movement. You haven't had a lot of teams move up and down the standings. And as I look at the Central here, Nashville is currently tied with the Blackhawks for fourth in the Central Division. We know Tampa's been flip-flopping there with Carolina and Florida. Now, Florida may lose their key defenseman as he got hurt in a collision there. I believe it was Saturday, if not yesterday, in Aaron Ekblad. He had to be taken off the ice on a stretcher, uh, and it looked like an innocent hit. He had a minor collision there with uh, Essa Lindell from Dallas, but he crumbled to the ice and actually left in an air cast. So anytime a player leaves with an air cast wrapped around his leg, it does not look good. And even though an MRI and results have not come out from that test, I guess the game was yesterday because we would have known by now whether or not the injury to Ekblad was going to be season-ending, but Chances are it possibly could be that way. So that's a huge loss for a guy who is, I believe, leading the NHL in goals as a defenseman so far in the season. So he will be surely missed. But the big story of the week was referee Tim Peel. Him being banned due to his mic being on where he called the penalty against the Predators. And I paraphrase here where he said, I'm giving an effing penalty to Nashville because it's early. Now, as far as integrity of the sport, they don't want to have another Tim Donahue scenario. If you remember the old rogue NBA referee from the middle of the 2000s or the late 2000s, and we all understand what his story was about. But with Tim Peel, who was going to retire after this year, a guy who had been an official going back to October of 99, had officiated in over 1,300 games and 90 playoff games, For him to make that comment live, I mean, obviously the mic was open and for the whole arena to hear, I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he felt that he wanted an early retirement. He was sick and tired of having to officiate these games. He couldn't wait any longer and he made that comment. Just an awful look. And the NHL did the right thing by doing that because not to say that there's going to be any type of controversy with the other officials or referees in the sport this was something that obviously he said and I'm sure if he could take it back he would I don't know if that's going to affect whatever it is when it comes to retirement pensions things of that nature but obviously the NHL had to get rid of him quick fast in a hurry and they were very swift in doing so so Tim Peel gets the heave ho from the NHL and you won't see him no longer the rest of this year now, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of things before I get to my hero and zero of the week, and they involve inside the ring. The first thing is, for the MMA fight fan, your new heavyweight champ is Francis Ngannou, who disposed of, I believe his name is Stipe or Steep Miocic. Now, I didn't watch the match. I did see the knockout, which was really bad. I mean, you would think Miocic tore his ACL when Ngannou reached back, clocked him, 
and all he did was fall backwards where his leg was just, it looked like his knee was going to shatter in a hundred different directions. That's how bad it was. So Nganu is now the title holder of the best heavyweight in the MMA, which now brings the conversation to a possible forthcoming match with John Jones. Will that be on the horizon? I know that's going to be all the talk right now. John Jones, who's obviously one of the bigger names in MMA, not only currently, but just all time. And we know about his transgressions and everything that's gone on with Jones off the, or outside of the ring, I should say, the octagon. So you have that MMA fans to chew on, and we'll pay attention to that as we move on if there is going to be a match between Nganu and John Jones. And last but not least, and I almost had to double take and rub my eyes here to read this, but for Oscar De La Hoya to make a comeback at 48, and listen, who am I to tell him what to do with his life if he wants to get back in the ring, if he wants to become a cornerman, whatever it is. We all know about his Golden Boy Productions and getting involved in the fight game in that regard with promotion and things of that nature. But And the sport is a former shell of its old self. We get that. But for him to make his return and he picked a date for July the 3rd, the first thing, forget about even asking why. Is it a money deal? Is it? You would think he has plenty of money. But all of a sudden, did the urge sprout up for him to want to go back in the ring again and granted this isn't anything close to the days that he fought when he had guys of Fernando Vargas Felix Trinidad Shane Mosley fighters of that ilk in this day and age because I couldn't even tell you what middleweight welterweight or anybody in that class off the top of my head right now that will go up against De La Hoya I don't know if this is just a publicity grab I don't know if this is just ego driven I'm sure part of it is that he wants to get back in the ring. He feels like he could go up against some of these young guys, but jeez. I I don't know. I I don't know what's going on in his brain for him to want to come back. And God bless him. Uh, Listen, as I said, who am I to say that, ha, ba, you know, what the hell is he doing? And I'm sure a lot of people have, and I did too. But let's see how this story unfolds. I don't think it's going to end up well, if you ask me. But good luck to him. That's all I could say. Uh, to me, to come back in the ring at 48. Ugh. And against what competition? I don't know. We'll just see what happens come July and we'll just take it from there. So, All right, now let me wrap up with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is one time Miami Hurricanes coach Howard Schnellenberger who turned around a Hurricanes football team that had considered, believe it or not, dropping the sport altogether. As far as athletics goes in the University of Miami, there in the mid to late 70s, he died on Saturday at the age of 87. We know what the Hurricanes had done after that with Jimmy Johnson, Dennis Erickson, the whole swag. They pretty much built swagger when it comes to not only just college football, but even football on a whole with the landscape, the players. We could go through the whole history there. And with Schnellenberger being the architect of building that program, winning their first title in that famed 83 championship game against Nebraska. We know about Mike Rozier and what he did against that hurricane defense, but then the two-point conversion that was stopped there at the goal line for the title, which didn't happen instead of kicking the extra point. But that was the jump off for the hurricane dynasty there in the 80s into the early 90s, and it all started there by Coach Howard Schnellenberger. So thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family. And my zero of the week 
goes to Massachusetts high school football coach or former football coach Dave Mymarin of Duxbury High for using anti-Semitic on-field play calls during their games using words like rabbi, Dreidel, even Auschwitz. I mean, really? What the hell is he thinking? I understand you want to use words similar to the famed Peyton Manning chant Omaha or whatever it is, Turbo or some of the other words that the NFL quarterbacks use, but what in the world was this guy thinking of when he was using those aforementioned words to try to get play calls on the field? I I don't know what to say. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. I mean, you really can't. So for Dave Mamaron, and he apologized, I didn't mean to offend, blah, 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 please. Use your noodle, my G. You are my zero of the week. So that will do it for episode 187. Thank you so much for listening to what it is I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. I greatly appreciate you downloading and listening to this content and visiting the website at www.jreels.com for all your info regarding not only just the show, archive shows, myself, for those who are just tuning in for the very first time. And whether this is your first time or 101st time or even your 187th, if you've listened since day one, I've implored everybody to do so, as I said at the very top, to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. So whether that's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music, Again, all I want you to do is just help the growth and expansion of this podcast just so I could get the former or current athlete, the play-by-play guy, the broadcaster, studio host, blogger, sports writer, you name it, so they could share their experiences with me so I could turn that to you guys so you can listen to their exploits on the field, in the press box, the broadcast booth, behind the scenes, etc. It's just going to increase the visibility of this podcast. So... For those who aren't familiar with it, just get the word out. So again, I would really appreciate it if you could go ahead and do that. Subscribe, rate, review. Four stars, five stars, a nice review. Sincerely appreciate that. Also, as I mentioned earlier, you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast, which is strictly sports. Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, and an email, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. With any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, feel free to reach out. I'll be more than happy to respond ASAP. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, to the production of the podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy where I continue to put forth this podcast out of the love of my heart. But if you want to contribute in any way, shape, form, or fashion to the production, to the website, to the equipment that I'm looking to build here as week in and week out, and hopefully bi-weekly, I could put forth everything that's happening in the world of sports. Whatever you want to contribute, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate that. Because whether you do or do not know, It's in the blood, people. I've been talking sports since day one on this planet, and I will continue to do so until the good Lord happens to take me, and hopefully that's not until a long time. And not only that, just to cap it all off, my birthday's on Wednesday, so if they want to give me a little bit of a birthday gift, just subscribe, rate, review. I would sincerely, as I said before, appreciate that because I love to get into everything. That's happening on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. 
from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.